я сомневаюсь, что есть где-то вот такой вот план Барбаросса, да, все заблокируем. Вот в Китае он есть. I doubt there is really some kind of Operation Barbarossa going on here, like let's block everything. But in China there is. Uh, no, it's more likely some people reach an old age who've decided they can, that if they forbid something, uh, then that's a good thing. Remember Phil from episode one of Telegram? Remember? Yes. Thank God. If you have not listened to part one of our two-part Telegram series from last week, go do that post-haste. This episode won't make a lot of sense if you don't do that. I realize it will actually kind of make sense, but like you really should just go listen to the first episode too. Like you can just listen to this one, but you won't get the full picture. You won't get and the full be, picture. And you'll be confused at certain Because parts. you might not know what like Telegram is or other things we reference yeah. are. And right. I mean, if right. you know what Telegram is, you might not know what things we reference are. So anyway, this is Phil Kulin, who is from episode one of the Telegram series. He's our resident blocking expert and the creator of the site Usher2.club, a site that monitors Ross Kamnadzor's blacklist. So you're already totally lost if you don't know yeah. what those <laughs> so things go are. Back. Go back. <laughs> Я, у меня у многих знакомых есть дети. Я там сравниваю себя, смотрю, как люди там с детьми работают. Я ловлю себя. I have на three мысли, kids and I have a lot of friends and acquaintances with kids. I compare myself. I look at how people work with kids, and it occurs to me that if I don't like how my kids behaving, I'm not gonna think. I mean, that happens sometimes. It's bad. I say, don't do that, and it seems convenient. And the older I get, the more convenient, easy it is for me to say, no, not allowed. And since they're kids, uh, they generally listen when I forbid something. And that is a thing people do, right? I try to stop myself, but you're the power. You don't really answer to anyone. You forbid something, and that's it. And those blocks started not because someone actually thought about the fact that they can block something, and that will be good, but because it's convenient. The thing is sort of blocked, and it sort of doesn't exist. And by the way, that's a bad thing, because it's absolutely unclear how to fight it, and specifically people often support such things. Uh, that's what I was saying. And so here is, uh, there is a bit of hopelessness. There is no party line, but everything is kind of most likely going to roll in that direction. As in, I'm not going to say that there is some evil mastermind sitting there who are directly, I don't know, we can name him some name, Zharov or even Vladimir Vladimirovich. No, no, it's not like that, of course. Uh, but there is nothing good in that either. Uh, it would be better if there was, there was, because then it would be clearer who we are fighting. From St. Petersburg and Brooklyn, this is She's in Russia, I'm Lily. And I'm Smith. Alright, so what's the plan today? Part two. Part two. Part two of the Saga di Telega. 
Right. So again, if you have not listened to part one from last week, best to do that now as it's chock full of information about what has happened in the Telegram v. Russia case so far. Uh, Lily, like what, for example? Like an overview of how the Internet is regulated in Russia. Very useful. Um, And how the block of Telegram happens technically. Right. So hop to. Yeah, we'll wait here. Well, wait, waiting, waiting. Okay, today, today's episode is about kind of the true motivation for why the Russian government is trying to block Telegram or the potentially true motivations, how encryption works and who the hell Pavel Durov is really. And, and the whole Telegram case is really unfolding before our very eyes. It's very a contemporary problem. And there's been a few things happening on the Telegram front this past week in the news. And so now to our correspondent in St. Petersburg, who's going to fill us in. Hello, coming to you live. <laughs> First off, on August 6th, so last Monday, there was a case in a Moscow court from a company called live photograph, and it was against Roskomnadzor and the prosecutor general's office. I was calling it the general prosecutor, but you know what? It's confusing in English. Say it backwards. So it's against these two government bodies. And basically the claim from live photograph said that what we've said before, which is when millions of IP addresses were mass blocked in April of this year was the goal of blocking Telegram. There was some collateral damage, as you might imagine. And this particular company, Live Photograph, decided to sue, um, claiming the block of their site was illegal and requesting to be moved from this list of blocked sites as Vigruska, if you recall. So the fun drama here is that the prosecutor general's office said that actually, no, they had nothing to do with the decision, not our business. It's not how I want to say it, but you know what I mean. Well, Roscom, well, Roscom Nadzor says that live photograph site got blocked based on a decision from the prosecutor general. So there's a little infighting. But the thing is, the prosecutor general says the decision that they made didn't include anything specific about blocking IPs. So uh, the site's lawyer, live photograph's lawyer, so the, whatever, the not the defendants, but the other people. Plaintiff? Yeah, the plaintiffs. Pointed out that if that's true, if the prosecutor general did not require the blocking of IPs outside of the document, so this like mass blocking outside of something specified in this um, decision, then Roskomnadzor overstepped their authority in blocking all those millions of IPs. So this is the like um, accusation. But regardless of this inviting, this squabbling, disagreements, whatever, between these two government agencies... Unfortunately, the court ruled in favor of them, Roskomnadzor et al., saying that what they're doing with the mass blocks is actually legal. Sorry, photography, you will remain blocked. Event number two of last week, that was only number one, also on August 6th, um, there was a new appointment. The deputy head of Roskomnadzor, Alerg Ivanov, was appointed deputy minister of digital development, <sighs> communication, and mass... <sighs> Let me say this again. <sighs> Deputy Minister of Digital Development, Communication, and Mass Communications, basically their communications ministry, also known in Russian as Minkomsvyaz. It's like the shortened version. Get it? Minkomsvyaz. Svyaz. What's Svyaz? It's like communications, connections. Yeah, communications. Okay. So both Mikhail from the Internet Protection Society, back from episode one, um, and Phil said that this guy is, this guy, Oleg Ivanov, who was just appointed, was the guy in charge of blocking Telegram, according to them. 
we actually messaged via go-between. We messaged this person who used to work for Mincomsfaz. Let's call him Sasha. And we asked what we asked him what the general sense is of the Telegram block from within Mincomsfaz. How people talk about it amongst themselves, etc. And he told us, and I quote, the ministry being a regulator, is not involved in policy enforcement, neither directly nor indirectly. This is all Roskomnadzor's duty. Moreover, ministry people, wisely, try to keep as far away from this topic as possible due to its evident toxicity. Lol. Yeah, serious lols. But now they're, like, mixing up, right? Savannah yeah, character. oh no. Oh, no. <laughs> Ivanov, go back. He's so toxic. He's bringing his toxic fumes. <laughs> yeah. um, so lastly from the news department, yet another sad one for Telega is that on August 9th, the, it was Thursday, I believe, the Supreme Court of Appeals upheld the original demands from the FSB that Telegram hand over those encryption keys. <sighs> Anyway, enough of the news, but we're still fighting. We're still here. <laughs> Persistence. So, the official... All right. Sorry. <laughs> enough of the news, enough of the news. Ladies, settle down. Ladies. 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 ladies all you ladies listening out there. So, let's get back into this. The meat and potatoes, which is I'm stealing from Smith. You've said that once and I like it. Yeah. The official line in the Telegram case is that Telegram broke the Yaravaya laws. They won't hand over those encryption keys to the FSB like good little boys, and that is why Roskam Nadzor is blocking them. But is this the real reason? From your tone, I'm getting no. Why, yes, no is a good theory indeed. Yes. People, including us, have lots of different ideas as to why Telegram in particular, as opposed to other similar messengers, internet companies, etc., um, is being blocked. So why it's being blocked and why Telegram. So Mikhail from the Internet Protection Society, and I'd like to gently remind you that the society was created by two big Navalny boys. So I just, <laughs> Giant boys. <laughs> two Navalny stars, and I just, like, from his party, and I just want you to keep that knowledge, like a li- that little grain of salt in your mind's pocket. <laughs> so Mikhail chalks it all up to the putster. So Mikhail says, we've come to the conclusion that, in terms of the block, that is, responsibility for the Telegram block, responsibility for that entire bacchanalia that's technologically underway right now, belongs to the president personally. Well, that's the conclusion we came to, and, well, yeah, that's what's happening right now. But, but what about this ICO business I've been hearing about? So, all right, you've heard the rumors. Well, first off, the people might want to know what an ICO is that you mentioned. Mm-hmm. ICO stands for, I'm just going to tell you, ICO stands for Initial Coin Offering. And it's a way for projects, for companies to get funding using, wait for it, brrr, <laughs> <laughs> Don't do drum noises. You know you can't do. Can them. I get a drum roll? <laughs> Cryptocurrency. <laughs> Yay! Yay! <laughs> <laughs> so we have an episode on. What oh the God, f- we're really peak annoying on this. Episode. No, we're not. We're this is this is charmed, charmant. I right, think keep this going. is old charmant. <laughs> Trey charmant. <laughs> 
<laughs> um, we have an episode on cryptocurrency and specifically the industry in Russia. So it's called Blockchain Bitches. So just add that to your listen later list because you don't need to listen to it right now. But yeah. But for now, just stay with me. I'm going to give you the basics. So to raise funds in an ICO, a company creates its own cryptocurrency and that's not bitcoin but it's very own cryptocurrency and it sells it to people who want to invest in the company it just sells it so the company gets money and often that money is in the form of another cryptocurrency like bitcoin or it can be in usd for example fiat currency and the investors who bought these new cryptocurrencies they get to keep them and usually they can those new cryptocurrencies can be used somehow within this company that's being invested in Right, within the product the company is making. Right, within the product the company is making. So now you know what an ICO is. <laughs> Let's get back to Telegram. So Telegram did exactly this. They are actually in the process of building a blockchain platform. I kind of feel like I'm, I am pretending that audio has SEO and I need to like hit all the keywords. I honestly feel like audio might... I feel like audio is on the verge of having SEO. Like, I'm sure that Google is is running voice recognition stuff on audio and indexing it in some way. On our audio? I mean, it, it indexes the entire web. So, like, it's going to hit sites where our podcast is and it's going to get that information. And I'd be really surprised if they haven't started, like, video. And, I mean, think, think about, like, YouTube stuff. Like, when you Google YouTube stuff, it's I don't think it's just looking at the text title and the description and the tags. I, I think that know. it's... They're, that they okay i can guarantee they're 100 percent in the process of starting to index audio and video uh, that would make sense. whether or not it's like in full forces okay so for the future of our seo blockchain, yeah. blockchain, blockchain, blockchain. um yeah so they're in the process of building a blockchain platform with its very own cryptocurrency right 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 annoying cut that out i hate right and in this past january february they sold an insane 1.7 billion dollars worth of these suckers these new crypt these new coins they created to a closed group pasha coin it's not called pasha coin don't <laughs> leave this podcast thinking that um <laughs> i'd like to invest in pasha coin honestly though i would Ugh. all right so yeah so they made their own cryptocurrency and they sold it for a total of 1.7 billion to a closed group of investors so you can't get involved sorry you're not rich enough in their very own ico which, by the way, is the second largest ICO ever in history. Um, and this is all to raise funds to support the development of their new blockchain platform and the existing Telegram app. And here's where things get interesting. So there's a little side theory, if you will, as to why Telega is blocked in Russia related to this. In late April, our favorite Russian media outlet that we love to cite, RBC, got a hold of a copy of a letter, which is was allegedly from um, an FSB employee named Roman Atipkin and was corroborated by three other government people, employees. And this letter, this letter claims that Telegram is blocked in Russia because of its blockchain ambitions or cryptocurrency ambitions. So let me just read you a little excerpt from the letter. Having launched his own crypto... 
we will get a completely uncontrolled financial system in Russia. And this is not Bitcoin for the marginalized. It will be simple, reliable, and uncontrolled. This is he a- really has a lot of uh, faith in the Telegram company to build something that's like really user friendly. Yeah, seriously. It will be simple. It will be reliable. Like, People will love it. It's like a total ad. Yeah. Um, this, this is a threat to the security of the country. All the drugs, the cash, the organ trade will go through Pavel's crypto. And he will say, I have nothing to do with it. You should ban words. That's what terrorists use. Well, when, when we asked Sasha, our, uh, our government connection, our Mincom Spaz guy, about this, as in, is the Russian government blocking Telegram because of its wildly successful ICO that might lead to the creation of an independent economy that the government can't control? Sasha wrote us, I don't comment on journalist gossip. Does he think we're journalists or does he just think the other people that talk about this are journalists? We are interpreting that to think that he thinks that we're journalists. We're not journalists, Sasha. Oh, wait, we don't want to be... Interp- yeah, journalists are lame. We're not journalists. <laughs> journalists. Also, by the way, just a wet blanket, this fun theory. Pavel Chikov. Oh, shit. I don't know how to say his name. Chikov. So anyway, Pavel, Pavel Chikov is the head of Agora, that human rights lawyer network. That Demir Ganadinov. Guy that Dana works for. Yeah, Demir, who spoke to us. He so it's the the group representing Telegram in the law in Russia. Um, he straight up denied this alleged reason for blocking the op op. <laughs> <laughs> he straight up denied this alleged reason for blocking the app in in a statement on his Telegram channel and was like, basically agreed with Mincomstras gossips. Yeah, so forgetting about this this ICO business, because um, that's just like. I feel like that's like a pet theory or something, or it's like fun to think about. Yeah, but there was a letter. There was a le- okay, but from okay, fair enough. There was a letter, but who knows what this like Roman guy is like? If his letter means anything, yeah, maybe somebody made a copy by hand. At, at any rate, m- maybe the main motivation for the Telegram block we came across, and kind of the most compelling to me personally, and I, I think to you, Lily, is the Russia factor. Uh, as in, Telegram is a company with Russian origins, and Durov, we know it's not a Russian company. So Telegram, as a Russia-adjacent company, is sort of a touchstone, as Demir puts it. Via email, he said, quote, I believe that Telegram was just a touchstone. From one side, the Russian government still considers it as a Russian platform, despite Durov denying any connections with Russia. Thus, they could expect it to be more loyal to their requests. From the other side, blocking of Telegram wouldn't damage the reputation as much as blocking Facebook or WhatsApp. Perhaps they also wanted to teach a lesson to the global platforms and to demonstrate their readiness for tough measures. Now we see how that looks like. Ha ha ha. He laughs. He did laugh. And he sent us a smiley face. Yeah, also so did Min comes to us. Yes. Journalist gossip, smiley. Everybody wants to smile at us. That's <laughs> because we're ladies. <laughs> <laughs> so our trusty block expert, Phil, had similar thoughts. Telegram, let's say, с ним можно поиграться. Он не самый популярный. Это не самая популярная программа, да? И поэтому с ним... Он популярен. Well, you can play with Telegram. It's not the most popular. Uh, it's not the most popular program. It's popular, but not the most. 
Uh, that's why it's kind of uh, kind of middle ground that can be played with. And in addition to that, it's those very same Russian roots, meaning it was an ideal whipping boy, мальчик для битья. We have such a term, a whipping boy, and this was really the ideal one for uh, Roskomnadzor. The only thing is, that's my opinion, and Telegram actually thinks the same thing. Uh, somehow, as you might imagine, we do have some communication with Telegram. It's thing, but it exists. So there's, yeah, we sometimes exchange some opinions, and yeah, that is also their opinion, that Telegram is an ideal whipping boy. It's clear that they, that uh, Pasha is playing, it's to his advantage to be this kind of leader, a pirate, he likes that, it's cool, even more so because he's for freedom, for truth. If people said that I was for freedom and truth, my hell would probably crush my head. Uh, it's clear he's not going to sit there and seriously discuss why they're blocking it, uh, but really they think that just that they're going to be a convenient whipping boy. More so because everyone knows that Pasha will immediately bristle up He'll start to tear his shirt off. He's very convenient. Uh, if you look at it from that point of view, uh, uh, then, well, uh, Roskomnadzor learned a lot for themselves. This was really helpful for them. Now they're concluding whether they can further close YouTube, for example, or not. <clears throat> so, so this is the thing, that Pavel and his brother Nikolai are Russian, and Telegram has Russian roots. It's, it's important. So let's let lawyer Max of Team 29, which, if you remember from episode one, is a network of lawyers and journalists who focus on defending freedom of information in Russia. And, and he's going to give us the rundown real quick about these Russian origins. So why is it Telegram? I think that in so much as Pavel Durov is after all a citizen of Russia and is the owner of this company and the messenger, is in very high demand. The FSB's demands were, uh, strictly speaking, primarily addressed with that in mind. Why not WhatsApp? Why not Facebook Messenger? Because the owners of those messengers aren't located in Russia. Those are foreign companies. They are not run by Russian citizens. Their owners are not Russian citizens. So it's fairly complicated to get to them. Uh, it's possible, it seemed to them, that getting to Durov was easier, since Durov was originally the co founder of, actually the creator of the social network V Contacte. After that, he was pressured and he left Russia and sold his part of the company and in no way controls V Contacte now. And after that, created Telegram. And as a matter of fact, it's most likely specifically because of that that our government started paying particular attention to Telegram. So we get it. That's important that Pasha is from Russia develop things, successful things in Russia, and then created Telegram, which gives the app's origin story this kind of inherent freedom-fighting ethos. Right, or, or this is the narrative, at least. In reality, Telegram, at least in some form, actually existed uh, before 2013, the year Dura fled from Russia, or early 2014. Um, in, in 2012, this company, Digital Fortress, an LLC, note, not a nonprofit, was incorporated in Buffalo, New York. So not under Durov's name, but under this American guy's name, Axel Neff. And this, amongst other... 
Yeah, quite a name. It's actually not his real name. I think his real name is like David or something. And Mm. this, amongst other LLCs, was the first iteration of Telegram before it was eventually moved across the pond. Right. So on the one hand, the fact of Pasha being from Russia makes people want to say Telegram is a Russian company. But Pasha is quick to correct them. Technically speaking, it's registered in London. So first it was American and then it was British. Oh, um, and, and, the, and Pasha lives in Dubai, as you may have known. Happily. He loves Happily. It. Happily lives in Dubai. But he understands that if he was gay, it would be different. He said that. <laughs> oh, wait, really? Yeah. He was like, uh. he was just trying to like recognize his privilege or something. Of living in I Dubai. But like, who's a woman? Fl- also, well, I don't know. I don't know. No, don't no, know you're right. In Dubai, about yeah. Dubai, yeah. But I, also like... He, I feel like that is an assumption that everybody would like be flocking to Dubai. Would love to live there if if it weren't for like fear of hate crime. What? But, oh, it's an assumption. Yeah, he's the way he's he's like it's my privilege to live in Dubai. But like the type of people that want to live in Dubai are like a very specific subset. You yeah, know, but he likes it. Yeah, I know he likes it. That he's one of the people in that subset. Yeah, he's like so luxury. So. <laughs> And from our sources, it seems that Telegram's employees are pretty decentralized, located all over the world, but with a healthy number based in Russia. Yeah, and, and side note, like Telegram did come out of V-Contact, like the original employees of Telegram. V-Contact, yeah. V-Contact, yeah. I didn't correct you the other time because I no, you didn't. The, the, the original, the original, um, like employees of Telegram were VK employees. Plus, that just makes sense. Like you know, he works with people in russia and then that's yeah the first no it totally it totally makes sense it totally makes sense yeah so so but it's unclear like where their actual offices are at, and if they have offices in different places which they probably do or if people are just working remotely from the comfort of their own homes right though we do hear that they go on fancy corporate retreats to scandinavia in the summers Aww. to work together fun So regardless of where some of the Telegram company is located and where it's registered, we can all agree Telegram's origins are based in Russia. And it's pretty easy to see Durov cares about what happens to the app in Russia. But don't take our word for it. Phil said so. You need to understand that, first of all, Telegram is a very large firm that grew out of a massive social network in Russia, and they have a whole lot of money. It's uh, one of those conditions that's, well, it's very important. Telegram has a lot of money, they have strictly Russian origins, they are basically psychologically interested, motivated to fight the bloc even if it's not interesting from a business perspective. And it's a lot of money. Uh, The second thing is that Telegram blog story started a little over a year ago. I was writing an article uh, that I actually want to publish tomorrow, and the Telegram news was really making it difficult, because I was searching for stuff on a DNS attack, and everything in Google on Roskomnadzor was about how it was battling Telegram. Uh, but this was more than a year ago, the same time, around March, April uh, 2017. Telegram not only has Russian roots, right? It's people that lived here for many years and possibly live here now. They understand everything perfectly. 
they back then started to prepare with a huge store of money, with a not bad technical base, with not bad technical specialists, they started to prepare. Well, I think they did that fairly carelessly, but they started doing it a year ago. Judging by what uh, Roskomnadzor did, they didn't prepare for more than a month before. Meaning, yes, it's not that Roskomnadzor one day decided that, okay, that's it, we're gonna shut it down. No, they were clearly prepared, but clearly a lot worse prepared. For some reason, they, judging by their first moves, they anticipated that Telegram was not at all prepared. But you have to understand that Telegram, it was very clear. They wait to see what Roskomnadzor does, they then release an update, wait to see what Roskomnadzor does, then update. And as it turns out, they just had solutions prepared beforehand. They just pulled them out of a folder and sent them out. Yes, this money business. Telegram, the application itself, doesn't make money. Remember, no advertisers, no charging users, fray, fray, fray. Fray. So, fray. So where the heck are they getting all this money from? Um, well, at least before their $1.7 billion ICO, um, all of Telegram's money supposedly came from Pasha's generous pocket, which is very full of money. Deep. In Deep, yeah, deep and generous. And in January of 2014, Durov publicly confirmed that he had sold his twelve, his re- remaining 12% stake in VK to his friend. Is that true? Really, yeah, his friend? he said my friend. He said, okay, okay. Sold his 12% stake in VK to his friend Ivan Tavrin. Tavrin? Yeah, something like that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Who is the head of the telecom operator Megaphone. And familiar sources say that the deal actually went down a few months before in December 2013. And since at the time VK was valued at between 2 and $4 billion, that puts Pasha's cash received at somewhere between 300 and $500 million doll hairs. USD. USD. Um, which, which he reportedly, according to Western media, then placed securely in a Swiss bank. As anyone with a brain would do. Yeah. Um, <laughs> That's where all my money is. <laughs> Seriously. All, like, $100 of it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I hire, like, a Swiss bank. My one one-thousandth of a bit. <laughs> uh, but who cares about money, right? None of you. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> we're all starving artists. We, we hate capital. It's he also appears to have acquired a lot of Bitcoin at that time. So th- this man is is not want for cash. Flush, flush. Given Telegram's origins, plus its current corporate structure from Russia, not in Russia, sort of. The Telegram case is quite complex, geopolitically and thus legally speaking. The situation is very complicated because, on the one hand, there are the demands of Russian law, uh, though here we consider it to be not consistent with human rights law, with the standards that exist. On the other hand, you have this powerful resistance from Internet users, and many say that you can't hand over encryption keys because that would actually be a violation of the right to privacy, to private life. Uh, well, and Telegram itself was created by Pavel Durov, who left Russia and it's, is the owner of this company and created it overseas. And so right now we have this, of course, very interesting situation when the FSB is in fact submitting a request to a Russian citizen to his company, but the citizen doesn't live in Russia, but still is really trying to fight back. And uh, he's called it digital resistance, this battle for digital rights. There it is. 
данное дело, как оно будет разрешено, оно, конечно, будет показательным для всех других мессенджеров. So в this case, however it turns out, it will, of course, be indicative, illustrative for all other messengers, because if the government actually blocks Telegram, then other messengers will maybe adjust their policies. But if their messenger hands over encryption keys, which is technically not even possible, then users will also react to that. They want to use that messenger, they'll look for a more secure one. And so enters Pasha, the saint of digital resistance. Here to hold the torch of privacy and freedom in Russia, but really the world over. So, back in April, a day into the block, Durov posts in his channel and actually coins the term digital resistance. And, and I am quoting him here. Russia accounts for about 7% of the Telegram user base. And even if we lose that entire market, Telegram's organic growth in the other regions will compensate for this loss within a couple of months. However, it is important for me personally to make sure we do everything we can for our Russian users. To support internet freedoms in Russia and elsewhere, I started giving out Bitcoin grants to individuals and companies who run SOC five proxies and VPNs. I'm happy to donate millions of dollars this year to this cause and hope that other people will follow. I call this digital resistance, a decentralized movement standing for digital freedoms and progress globally. He even at one point in this mix draws this little dog with a hood on it, and it's actually the VK logo doge with a hood, and it gets made into multiple sticker packs in Telegram, plus gets incorporated into tons, into tons of memes, etc. And then a week after the block begins, he calls for people to show support for Telegram in the streets. Quote, for seven days, Russia has been trying to ban Telegram on its territory, with no luck so far. I'm thrilled we were able to survive under the most aggressive attempt of internet censorship in Russian history with almost 18 million IP addresses blocked. If you live in Russia and support free internet, fly a paper plane from your window at 7 p.m. local time today. Please collect the airplanes in your neighborhood an hour later. Remember, today is Earth Day. My thanks to all the members of the hashtag digital resistance movement. Keep up your great work setting up SOC, I guess SOC S5 proxies and VPNs and spreading them among your Russian friends and relatives. They will be needed as the country descends into an era of full-scale internet censorship. And it works out. Like, people actually do this. They, they fly the paper airplanes from their window. Lily, you even participated, right? Yes, I did. I, in fact, taped my paper plane to my window <laughs> for multiple logistical and ethical, <laughs> ethical reasons. Logistical and environmental reasons. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and then on April 30th, a bunch of organizations, including the Internet Protection Society, um, of which Mikhail is the executive director, um, these folks, Roskom Svobodia, the Libertarian Party and Navalny's party, organize a protest in Moscow and about 12,000 people show up. It's, it's like a pretty good turnout. And I said this at the time when it happened, and I will say it again, that it's kind of crazy to me that so many people came out essentially in defense of supporting a private company. I mean, I, I know that's like a, that's pessimist. like not quite fair. Yeah, it's pessimistic. Well, it's not necessarily pessimistic. It's like kind of ignoring half the equation that, which is that Durov has managed coined to this sort of coin this movement. term and yeah. thereby kind of solidify this movement that didn't have maybe a clear cut name before. But like people come out and they have paper airplanes, which is Telegram's logo. 
Right. It is. It's it's pretty incredible. And there was also an analogous but much smaller scale protest. I think it was under a thousand people in St. Petersburg on May 1st, just after that. But yeah, I think that this mass reaction, at least in Moscow, really speaks to the fact that Pasha has done quite a good job of aligning his company's message and brand with a broader message that's actually really important to a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he, coining digital resistance is obviously a good business move. I, I don't want to be, like, too hard on him because... Like, too cynical? Well, yeah, I don't want to be too cynical because, like, he says, like, I do trust him to an extent, but I'm also suspicious. Well, it's just one of those things that, like, I feel like it's important to remember. It's like, yes, this is all very important, but at the end of the day, you have to remember that it's, like, about a private company, even though they're, like, they're a nonprofit. I mean, no, they're they're not registered as a nonprofit. They just don't make any money. I think they're actually uh, registered as an LLP or something like that, whatever that means. I mean, because he literally is just paying for it, and now they have that that ICO that they can use. But he doesn't. He he. That can't be right. Uh, well, it, it that is what it is said. Whether or not that's true, but that is what's said. Okay. So it's just like, but it's not sustainable. I mean, it will no. It's certainly not as sustainable, except for the fact that he just did an ICO and got one point seven billion dollars. Right. So, it is sustainable now. But he didn't. But before it was like being funded by himself, which is cray cray. Yeah. I mean, but if you if you think about like how many startups are actually just funded by venture capitalists and aren't sustainable at all and and lose a lot of money, like he's just doing that, except that he's collapsed the two things and that he's the venture capitalist. And yeah. The company. Which is not like, that's not that uncommon. Also. Right. And that's it is he is right in that he doesn't have outside pressure, at least before the ICO. We can argue whether or not he has pressure now, but at least before the ICO, like he just was funding. Right. right, right. It was just his own. Yeah. And obviously making right. Correct decisions. Yeah. 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 I just want to point out a little something also that's a little bit obvious, maybe. But at least part of the reason why Pasha so personally invested, um, which he says, like, it's personally, it's important to him what happens in Russia. It takes such a strong stance in Russia, is explained or at least enabled by some pretty basic sociolinguistic stuff. So he speaks Russian as opposed to Persian, for example. So he couldn't, like, communicate with the people when Telegram was confronted with being blocked in Iran. Although, honestly, he could have, but no. He could have, though. Like, you can get people that speak Persian and do the same thing in Iran. He okay. just, like, chose right. not but the, to. But there's an there's a easy sort of access for right. him. Like, so right. what and I he's mean already is, a figure in Russia that people trust. To he's a person that people know, at least. They might yeah. don't trust yeah. him. But he can post in Telegram, in his channel, and he can post on his VK page in both Russian and English, just, like, directly, right? So right. he does that immediately. And he does that in both places. And he reaches a much broader audience than if he was just posting in English. And it also sort of he's reminding Russian speakers that he is one of them, one of their own. Also, socially speaking, same thing. I mean, you don't need to be a genius to venture that he feels a personal stake in what happens to the country where he was born. Um, It's a country he grew up in, and it's a country that he has a lot of cultural, personal and social ties to and to the people there. And well, another thing is there's the whole fighting the system from inside theory so it's possible he's taking on the case in russia uh through the russian legal system because he and others in his company are extremely equipped to do so unlike facebook or whatsapp Mm -hmm. so given all of this as you might imagine the leader of the digital resistance is a very convenient image for pasha and and for telegram the company 
So we spoke to Professor Lokit about this. Do you have, like, do you um, know how legitimate that position is or if that also is sort of like a, a farce of some sort, like a show? Um, I mean, I think that, again, I mean, you know, if you just consider the words that Pavel Duro is saying, they, they look fine and they sound fine and, like, sure. I mean, it's, it's, it's an admirable position. Like, we won't hand over control uh, over our encryption keys or over user data to to the government but again like telegram has not been very open about their encryption protocol right so i think a lot of um, like security experts have a lot of questions for them that they're not willing to answer so like even to discuss the fact like can they or can't they actually pass encryption keys um and are they you know, just saying we won't, or they saying we can't, or whatever it is. It's like, well, we we can't check how, and also like we can't know how secure the encryption is because they won't show us the code because they're not use they're using their own variation uh, of you know their encryption technology that there's sort of that they created themselves. So I think, like on the one hand, a lot of people admire Durov's position, and for a lot of people, that also connects quite logically with his sort of history in Russia, you know, where he used to, he created and, and ran the most popular social network and was then sort of kicked out, sold his shares, left the country because as he claims, you know, he was sort of pushed, pushed um, to do all of this stuff by the federal security service. And so, so for a lot of people that kind of rolls quite neatly into this narrative of like this hero and you know this opponent of the Russian government but also I mean we should remember I mean Telegram is also a business right so their decisions are informed as much by you know their dislike of the Kremlin or their propensity for protecting internet freedom but they're also informed by their business decisions and sort of like economic decisions they will make and so I think we should remember that. And I and I actually side with the like internet security experts who constantly sort of demand that Telegram, you know, actually prove that their encryption is actually good enough and that it's actually end to end because they make a lot of claims, but they don't support it, those claims with a whole lot of disclosure or information, unlike some of the other um, encrypted or messengers that claim that they're encrypted. So so right. So I think. The narrative is certainly worthy, but it's also very much like it's it plays into Telegram's hands. Like it 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 pays to be the victim in this case, right? Because you then you get a lot more support. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So so I mean, it's it's you know it's a worthy. It's certainly a, a great kind of stance to adopt. But also you know let's 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 think about it. You know so. Durov was calling on all the Telegram users to go out and protest, but he was doing so from the safety of wherever the hell he happens to be this week, right? <laughs> so, on a horse in Dubai, or yeah, wherever, <laughs> half naked, you know. So <laughs> that also helps. Um, you know, every time something happens, let's just post a half naked picture. <laughs> It's so confusing. It's kind of like it's like narrative. Let's pull the narrative blanket this way. <laughs> it's also so funny that he competes with seems to be competing with Putin on this. Yeah, that's so. true. Yeah, I'm sure people <laughs> compare that, but I hadn't actually thought of that comparison. Wow, that's hilarious. 
I think he literally mentioned it once. He's like, here's Putin has shirtless pics on, on a horse. So here's a shirtless pic of me on, you know, somewhere else. <laughs> okay. What are you implying there? <laughs> the other president of Russia? Yeah. Are you trying to, are you running for the, are you running for president, Pavel? What's are going on? Next? That's what he's going to do after his ICO. He's going to be like, and Pavel Durham for president. <laughs> That's what the money is going towards. <laughs> All right. So, yes, this is a question, the question about encryption, because I think this image of Durov is, as some golden boy of digital resistance is all muddled up in the fact that Telegram is the app of privacy and freedom. Uh, you know, that's the way it's marketed. Um, no one can read your messages because your messages are encrypted. And that's the core fact at the center of all this. It's the reason the Russian government officially blocks Telegram. Like, that's their official line. The Yaravaya loss. But there's a little bit of a farce going on here as well. Yes, a light farce. Um, and, and there's two reasons for this. One, like Lokit said, the encryption algorithm Telegram uses isn't super public, nor is it peer-reviewed. And two, there are two types of chats in Telegram. The end-to-end encrypted chats, or what they call secret chats, and regular chats, which are the default type of chat, which are only partially encrypted. Um, in, in case you don't in, kind of intuitively understand what encryption is, real quick, you take a chunk of text, and this can be, it can also be a video or audio, but we'll, we'll stick with text because I think it's easier to understand. You generate a random key, which is just a string of numbers and letters, and you feed your chunk of text, so you're like mes my message to Lily, and this key through an encryption algorithm. And it basically, it uses the key to jumble the the text of the message up into some sort of gibberish so that nobody is able to read it. And the only way that you can read this text is if you decrypt it using the same key that was used to encrypt it, right? So this is what makes it secure. If you don't have the key to decrypt the message, you're kind of SOL. Shit out of luck. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so now that you know how encryption works, we talked to this professor, Matthew Green, about the distinction between Telegram's end-to-end -end encryption used in the secret chats and Telegram's regular default chats. And Matthew teaches cryptography at Johns Hopkins. Highly qualified. <laughs> the other day I referred to, I think I referred to him as a cryptologist, which is not the same Cryptographer. Thing. Should we say to, we talked to Professor Matthew Green or this professor? It's up. To, I think this professor is fine. It's more casual. Okay. This, this random math professor. professor. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Okay, so um, in, in terms of Telegram's encryption algorithm, um, they're, they're notoriously cagey about sharing what exactly it is that they're using, and supposedly they've built uh, their own custom encryption protocol. Can you talk about what we do know about their algorithm? So Telegram published a bunch of documents that talk about how their crypto works. It's not incredibly detailed. There's also some open source code, which may or may not be the exact code in their apps. Um, Basically, they started kind of from scratch and they reinvented their own encryption algorithm. Uh, we know a couple of things. So normally when you use Telegram and you're not using Telegram secret chat, so just normal Telegram, what you're actually doing is you're only encrypting data between you and Telegram servers. And the data that you're sending is actually in clear text, meaning that Telegram can read it and maybe record it on their servers. And then it gets encrypted from Telegram back out to the person you're talking to. And if you're using a group chat or a channel, that means, you know, potentially lots of people. 
So that is not end-to-end encryption. And Telegram kind of admits that much, and, and that's normal. Telegram also has this secret chats feature. Maybe they don't call it secret chats, but they have this uh, this private chat feature where you actually do use end-to-end encryption where Telegram servers are not supposed to be able to read the data. And when you're using that feature, Telegram uses a combination of public key crypto and some symmetric key crypto, and they use kind of a custom encryption protocol they built from scratch to encrypt the data that you're sending to the, the person that you're talking to. Okay, I have two follow-up questions from that. The first is like, what is the point of encrypting only one side of the conversation? So, I mean, the, the, the idea of the normal Telegram protocol is that it's really easy. It solves a lot of their problems. You're, you're not encrypting one side of the conversation exactly. You're encrypting, think of it as like if I'm driving to the supermarket, I'm in an, in an armored car. But once I get to the supermarket, I get out of the armored car. And that makes Telegram's life. If Telegram servers are the supermarket. You know, it's really easy for them to, mm. to move, move data around when it's not encrypted. And then, you know, you get you leave the supermarket, you get back in that armored car, which is like it's encrypted. You go to, you know, your other destination. It's a really lousy analogy. No, I like it. It's actually helpful. Okay, wait, so essentially in that case, it's like three different parties have the encryption keys. Like you have it, Telegram has it, and then whoever is the receiver has it as well. Exactly. And that's definitely not end-to-end encryption because it means that Telegram is in the loop. They can see everything you're saying. They might not care but they can definitely see what you're saying on their servers. Okay, hold on. So uh, so the reason that's done is, because Smith, you asked what's the point, is so that there's no like that like man in the middle thing. So no one can intercept the message as it's going in the armored car, right? Right. So if you're talking over a Wi-Fi network in a, you know, in a coffee shop, you don't want someone in the coffee shop to be able to intercept your messages. So the encryption between you and Telegram servers protects you against that kind of person. But it doesn't protect uh- you against Telegram. So I feel like it's slightly dishonest to kind of market and describe yourself as an encrypted messenger and like really push this image of yourself when your default chats aren't end-to-end encrypted. And maybe it's not giving enough like credit to the user. Like I believe that they don't aren't aware enough to, to recognize this. But generally the app seems to be designed more or I wouldn't even say seems. It is. It's designed more around the regular chats, so the ones that aren't fully end-to-end encrypted. And, for example, the version of the desktop app I have doesn't even support the secret chats. So the Telegram app does have this ethos of, like, encryption, end-to-end encryption, blah, blah, blah. But in reality... I mean, in yeah, in reality, it's really safe to assume that most people use regular chats. We do. Because that, because that's the default, people. Why would you go search? Why would you try? Um, <laughs> the fact that our messages are just sitting on some Telegram server with the potential to be decrypted is a bit concerning. Yeah, I agree. We say really important top secret stuff. It doesn't matter what we say, Smith. It's our rights. <laughs> true. They can't hear anything we say. But this, okay, I'm back. Muppet disposed of. I killed it. Oh, I would never do that. But this actual, this actual end-to-end encryption, the real deal. uh, How exactly does it work again? How exactly does it work again? How does it work? Uh, How does it work, Mister Green? Professor Green, let us know. Oh, he let us know. (laughs) Yes, he did. (laughs) Yes, it is. (laughs) 
<laughs> yes, it is. What is that even from? That's from That's this funny. lady walking past me in New York when I was like, there's too many people oh, yeah. here and I'm overwhelmed. <laughs> yes, said, it is. yes, it is. <laughs> All right. So, so the way Secret Chat works is it uses public key encryption. It uses something called the Diffie-Hellman protocol. And the idea of this is that I can agree on a key with you. By the way, you and I are both two individual users with our own phones. I can agree on a key with you without somebody in the middle being able to intercept that communication and see what that key is. So Telegram's in the middle, and you and I are two users with our own phones. I can use this Diffie-Hellman protocol to establish a shared key between you and I that only we know. And then once we have the shared key, we use this encryption protocol that Telegram developed, which is called MT Proto, to actually encrypt every single message we send back and forth. And so that's generally speaking how Telegram's uh, end-to-end encryption works. There's a little bit of a kind of a concern here, which is that there is no way for me to know that I'm really talking to you. So somebody else, including Telegram, if they were really malicious, could pretend to be you. They could pretend to be your phone. And they could run this protocol where we establish a shared key. And instead of talking to you, I might end up sharing a key with some bad guy in the middle. This is uh, something called a man-in-the-middle attack. Telegram's defense against this is what we're supposed to do after we establish a secret chat is we're supposed to compare a thing called a key fingerprint, which is a, a number and a picture that shows up on your phone. We're supposed to get together and compare these things to make sure that we both got the same key fingerprint. And if they match, that should guarantee that nobody got in the middle of our communications and tried to uh, fool us and, and establish a key with the wrong person. How so in in Telegram's case, it's like a little string of emojis. How like where are those emojis decided, and how exactly does that confirm that I'm talking to the right person? So the basic idea is that when you and I run this Diffie-Hellman protocol to establish a key, um, we get a key, and then we get basically what you could think of as kind of a function of that key. So it doesn't reveal the key, but it's a number that is kind of like a fingerprint of that key. And that's where those emojis come from, those weird symbols. I see. Okay. So the, so the idea here is if a, if a bad guy gets in the middle of the connection, they can definitely run the protocol with me, and I'll think I'm doing it with you. But the trick and the, and the, the trick is I will get a different key fingerprint. I'll get a different key and a different fingerprint with them than I would if I was talking directly to you. The typical way a man in the middle works, the really clever one, is the person in the middle runs the protocol with me, pretending to be you, and then they run the protocol with you, pretending to be me, normally neither of us can tell this is happening. We just know we're talking to someone out on the wire. We don't know who it is. But the trick is when you try to run that man in the middle attack, we'll end up with two different key fingerprints because they'll end up establishing a different key with you than they established with me and our key fingerprints won't match. Okay. So, so to confirm that I understand how this works, essentially when you run the, what is it called? Diffie-Herman? Diffie-Herman. Diffie, when you run the Diffie-Hellman protocol, it essentially takes like some hash combined with like your personal metadata, like the who you're talking to, whatever, and like runs this algorithm and spits out the encryption key along with this fingerprint. And so you're both putting, it's like deterministic, you're both putting the same parameters into the algorithm, right? There's some random, there's, there's random stuff that goes into it too, to make sure the key is different every time we run it. But yes, okay. it'll, it'll be a key that is, if I run this protocol with you, I will get one key. And that and if you run that protocol with someone else, you're likely to get a very different key. 
Right. So so it's deterministic in the sense that if I run this protocol with you, you'll get the same output as me. Exactly. Okay. And so and so that's why you don't have to actually like send the encryption key to through Telegram to the other person's phone. Yep. And this is this is called a key agreement protocol. And the whole idea is exactly like that. It's a we agree on a key that you and I both share. How it works, I mean, it involves, uh, you know, they, they, they do some specific number theoretic stuff, but the end result is we get a key that you and I share. This MT protocol, the encryption algorithm that Telegram invented, has an unorthodox beginning, especially in comparison to the other two popular encrypted messengers, WhatsApp and Signal. Okay, so Signal and WhatsApp both use what's called the Signal protocol. Um, it was invented by uh, Moxie Marlinspike and uh, Trevor Perrin. And they started with Signal. Signal is kind of like their test platform. It's not as popular as, as WhatsApp or Telegram, but it's where they kind of like try all of their new crypto ideas. They've published a lot of stuff about how that protocol works. It's been looked at by a lot of cryptographers who pretty much have blessed it as doing a very good job. Um, WhatsApp uses the same thing. There are some slight differences like group chats and WhatsApp are a little bit less secure because the server decides who belongs to a group chat. So there's a little possibility of WhatsApp having, you know, if a server at WhatsApp is malicious, it can do more damage to you by adding people to your group chat. Um, and then there's Telegram and Telegram, unfortunately, doesn't really start with a peer reviewed, well reviewed protocol. They, uh, the best I understand is that the Telegram folks found some very smart mathematicians in Russia who were not trained cryptographers, and they kind of reinvented parts of crypto from scratch. And they came up with this protocol called MT-Proto, which is not broken in any way that I know of. It's not really broken, like I can't decrypt it, but it's really non-standard. And one of the results of that non-standard, it just makes me a little bit nervous, right? So as it's, as it's described, it's probably okay. But even small flaws in the way somebody wrote the code in Telegram could potentially make it weaker. So it generally makes me a little bit less confident in Telegram as being a strong, um, secure app compared to Signal and WhatsApp, which use something that I really know and trust. So generally speaking, again, I don't want to go out and say there's a problem in Telegram. I just think that they're crypto. It's sort of like imagine that I built a car and that parts of the car were made from like homemade metal that I just invented yesterday, I would be a lot more nervous about getting in a car crash in that car than in one that's built out of, you know, steel or aluminum that I know are pretty standard things to use in a car. That That's all I'm saying about it. So the final point we want to make here about encryption is that with, in Telegram's case, the user's privacy within the app is really in many cases dependent on Pasha's ongoing benevolence. Because as it stands, Telegram really technically, if we believe them, cannot give the FSB the encryption keys of the six different accounts being requested because they don't have them. They're stored on the user's phones, assuming these folks use secret chats, which is also an assumption. I mean, I would hope that if you're planning a terrorist attack, you're using secret chats. That's just a little tip from Sir. I hope you use secret and disappearing. You can use the disappearing kinds. Jesus. Yeah, we we want the we want the terrorists to be able to plan successfully. Oh my god, we need to cut. This is not good for our image. Well, well because um, what? right. So because if they were using regular chats, then technically speaking, Telegram could give the government access to these messages because Telegram, along with the two people messaging, have the encryption key as well. Like they could get in. They could go. The, the messages saved on the server, 
mm-hmm. and they could encrypted, encrypted, mm-hmm. but they could decrypt it because right. it's not end to end. Duh. Why is that? Because it's it's easier to move um, and do stuff with messages. I mean, Green oh, explained it, but yeah, it's easier yeah. to do stuff with messages when they're not encrypted. And also, no, they are encrypted. No, but at, it's called like at rest. So like they'll be encrypted on the server, but then when Telegram goes to do something with them, like move like, it to your computer, s- move you it to your computer, it. or like yeah, anything like that, it, it will basically decrypt it to move it around. Does he talk about the user experience thing in his quote in his in the parts you did? He might, but it's it really isn't important. Well, it is important because it's like you wonder why. Basically, it's so that you it's easier and more convenient for you to use Telegram. You open your phone right. and then you open your computer later and the same messages are there and you don't have to like do like with WhatsApp where you have to like annoyingly like have your phone be alive and yeah. well and connected to the Internet. So it's yeah. But but also like, I don't know. Fair enough on WhatsApp's part. Like they want to be truly end end encrypted and that's how you have to do right. it. So they they compromise a little bit on convenience. User experience. User experience. Yeah. 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 Yikes. So Telegram has complete control over the architecture of their app, meaning that they have the ability to comply with the Yaravaya laws if they were to change the application's architecture so that Telegram could have access to all encryption keys from the secret chats or whatever. They would change the structure entirely. Right. It would essentially mean that secret chats would no longer exist. Yeah. And then they would have the ability to hand over the keys to the government, etc., and that would really be it for any real privacy on Telegram, if if they were to do that, which they are not going to do that. I, no plans at, so, at point least, to that. Well, yeah. Well, yeah, for now. But and by real privacy, I mean your messages are between you and your interlocutor, not access interlocutor, not accessible to or controlled by any third party, including Telegram. Right. Remember the armored car? Your message may be encrypted to and from the server, but the people with access to the server can also decrypt those messages. In this scenario, as it stands right now, the only thing standing between the user's personal messages and the government, in regular chats at least, is Pasha. Right, because there's no, there's no laws regulating that. Which, is, which, like, however gallant and righteous a man Pasha is, this whole scenario is a bit frightening and fragile to have one person be the lock and key for like an entire form of an entire. What is that? Like an entire. I mean, what? you know, literally speaking, like an entire application's privacy, but really but, like the privacy of the communications. Of well, the we also don't know. We don't. App. Hold on. We don't know the governance of Telegram. So maybe we should say the Telegram company, but like still. Sure, sure. You know, right. maybe like, he doesn't. You have would, it. you would hope that if if Dorov tries to change, if Dorov tried to like hand over the keys to government or something, there would be people within the gum- company that would rebel. Right. I don't think it's like an all like total authority situation, but we don't know. And, and and also a side note here, like even with the secret chats currently, forgetting about like what uh, Dorov and and Telegram do in the future, the the current secret chats there's actually a whole lot of unencrypted metadata like the time of the messages the length of the messages the users involved all just sitting on some telegram server so that could be if telegram so chose so chose so chooses to, uh, to be handed over to the government no need for encryption keys currently that could be handed over yeah yeah so what exactly does the government think about all this encryption business well our only government representative yeah <laughs> sasha from mincom says who probably doesn't want to be the only one, but whatever. He gave us a little perspective from the government side of things. I quote, 
So what could be done about encryption from the law enforcement agency, the LEA point of view? Well, not much. Some LEAs enforce the usage of backdoors in the client, for example, to escrow generated keys to some server or to spoof QR codes. And just for an example, the QR codes could be like the emoji footprint that Professor Matt talked to us about. Anyway, back to the quote. Some LEAs use backdoored encryption functions. I must note that this problem is being studied by all the LEAs and regulators worldwide, as they all have similar objectives. This question poses a moral discussion of privacy versus public safety. But that's a different matter. Is it a different matter, Sasha? (laughs) Yeah, that really kind of reminds me of what Demir said back on episode one, when the courts told Telegram that they they weren't discussing users' (laughs) rights in terms of what it means for users, what it would mean for users if Telegram gives the government access to their correspondence, namely their right to privacy, etc. The court said the matter at hand was that Telegram is not following the law. That's what we're discussing here. And thus, they're potentially threatening the country's safety. Right, like we don't have any responsibility to the users. And and obviously, this is like kind of an artificial distinction, simply because when you talk about the technology that would be used to impinge on citizens' privacy, you're, you're, you're inherently having a conversation about the morality of privacy versus public safety. Like they're, they're not separable. The moral conversation isn't some, some, isn't some separate abstract conversation that needs to be have, had at like a different time and a different moment. It's all part of the same thing. So like when you're talking about software backdoors like Sasha talks about or face recognition tech in public places or just like video cameras everywhere, I, I think it's personally extremely dangerous to be like, well, here's the technical conversation about how we're going to do it. And somehow the moral one is separate from that. Well, it doesn't make any yeah, sense. Yeah, and it's that you're talking about public safety, not that you're, t- you're talking, when you're talking about public safety, then you, no one should be surprised that um, concepts like public safety, national security, and social order, no one should be surprised that these are the alleged motivations behind restricting moves like internet censorship and things that restrict privacy. And different countries implement these restrictions to varying degrees in the name of public safety, etc. But when you think of degrees of internet censorship by country, there is one big guy that stands out from the crowd. And that would be, can you guess, Smithy? China! China. Right mundo. But also North Korea, but we're not going to talk about that. <laughs> That's too confusing for us. Yeah, we just... We <laughs> too don't closed to, off. We don't want to talk about North Korea. A lot of people we spoke to about internet censorship in Russia mentioned China as this ultimate example of a closed internet society, one that other countries' internet policies can be compared to and differentiated from. And when I spoke to lawyer Anna from Team 29, she brought up this comparison. So Anna said, I just remembered when I was in China a year ago and I confronted the problem of blocking in China. The majority of Google services don't work there, including Maps, including Gmail, other services that I need every day. Instagram, And then I started interrupting her because I had been to China once for like two days. And I was like, and like Instagram? And she was like, yeah, like Instagram, exactly. She's like, I need to check my email. And you're like, but what about looking at pictures? <laughs> She's like, I need a map. I'm like, it's different. <laughs> yeah, and then she says, she continues, 
And spending not even a long time there, I definitely felt a kind of restrictiveness, specifically restricted, being restricted from using certain services that really will support a part of my life. YouTube, all these services are forbidden there. So you find yourself in a partial information vacuum, meaning you're partially cut off from information that you're used to consuming. Sure, you can say it's a matter of habit, and people in China have created all their own parallel services, their own messengers, and Chinese people basically walk around as if their phones are attached to their hands, and well, probably they're used to that by now. I think the idea of getting used to the fact that a part of the Russian internet is cut off, well, we probably won't get used to that, and we probably won't ever agree to that. We always, you know, it's really similar to Samizdat. When a lot of literature was self-printed, it was printed independently and distributed independently, we, Russian citizens, have always found methods of gaining access to information that the government wants to prohibit. And it will be the same with Telegram. With all other messengers and information, it will be the same. And no, Russia is not China. But according to Phil, our blocking expert, the goal of the Telegram block for some may actually be to bring Russia a bit closer to China. I have a theory, a proposal. I even discussed it with my colleagues that uh, one of the goals is to... Well, we're getting a little philosophical here. Uh, but one way or another, we're heading towards China. Well, not towards China exactly, but to how our officials uh, or businessmen, people in power, some kind of people who rotate near a source of power, I'm not going to say it's specifically officials or lawmakers, just people who rotate around the source of power, how they see the Chinese path, though they see it really falsely. I can subjectively say that they don't quite understand this Chinese path. And getting to China for us is like getting to the moon, and we're absolutely not going straight. Uh, but they have their own kind of fairy tale vision of how Chinese censorship works. And one way or another, they're going to head in that direction. And I believe the Telegram block was a test to see how much public opinion there would be, how much of a social explosion, social unrest, we have this term, social unrest. Will there be some kind of rebellion? How society will react to the closure of, well, a kind of medium, popular resource? And they're testing that in preparation for, for example, closing YouTube. Because YouTube is the news, it's the distribution, dissemination of facts that you cannot hide. It's really hard to deal with. I'm afraid in Russia it will be like in China. There will be the closing of the main social networks, the closing of YouTube. Well, maybe it won't happen, uh, but that was a test. Well, we have people to thank, and we would like to sincerely and largely thank <laughs> a huge and sincere, a big boy thank you. A huge and sincere thank you to the people that 
made this episode possible. That would be Phil, Demir, Max and Anna, Matthew, and Mikhail. And as well as a huge thank you to Andre for graciously doing the voiceover work yet again. And really a lot. And Yulia, who made another amazing cover art for this episode. Thank you. Do you think we were too hard on Pasha? Yes, thank you very much to all those people. But do you? Let me just think about it for one second. Okay. No. Okay. Because he like is the kind of person who posts about like things that he's giving up and like is like yeah, I don't okay. drink right, alcohol. Right. It's like no. Right. Okay. You don't deserve my sympathy. <laughs> <laughs> he's like, I don't drink. Here's things I gave up that make me feel amazing because yeah, I did like, this. I, I don't watch TV. Sugar. I don't drink alcohol. I don't drink caffeine. It's sugar. Like, well, you're having yeah. a fun life. You and digital he is freedom. having a fun life, though. Yeah, I mean, he's just like a. I'm just I don't kidding. know. No, I don't think we're being. How are we being harsh? We're just, we're just being realistic, giving the people. Yeah, knowledge. no, I know, I know. But sometimes I feel bad because like. He's doing mostly a good thing. And then we're like, he's a little bit lame, you know? No. No, I definitely don't feel bad about that. The question of, like, sort of questioning the whole ethos is, like... It's valid. Yeah. It is valid. It is valid. It's valid. Okay, we're good. We're all good. We're all, all fine right. here. <laughs> yeah, we're all fine. All right. Be sure to follow us at She's in Russia on Twitter and Telegram. Uh, sign up for our monthly image-based newsletter at she'sinrussia.com. Uh, if you have any questions, give us a call at plus one three four seven two nine two seven one two six, or you can do the same at Skype at Cheese in Russia. And last but not least, and we should really start saying this earlier, yeah, peppering it throughout our conversations. You, you keep um, forgetting. Well, I don't keep forgetting, but I'm saying like we should say it up front. Sean says it up front. Yeah. Um. It's yeah. Support if you, us. If you want to support the podcast, please support us at patreon.com slash Cheese in Russia. You get fun stickers and magnets and, and socks and you can choose to contribute any amount yes yeah. yeah it can be as low as one dollar anything lower than well, one dollar is pitiful and i don't think the platform will allow you to do it okay so okay as low as one dollar yeah nice but if you support us we really really would appreciate it and to those who already support us again a massive thank you for making lots of things already possible Yep, and we will see you next week with a soothing, soothing episode. Soothing. Okay, goodbye. Like a snail. <laughs>